You're listening to Self-Publishing Journeys, the weekly podcast for all new and aspiring self-published authors. Stand by for tips, resources, hints, and practical techniques to help you on your own self-publishing journey. Meet indie authors at different stages of their writing careers and hear how they manage to get their own books published and making sales. For show notes, web links, and useful resources, please head to selfpublishingjourneys.com. Now, here's your show host, self-published author and digital marketer, Paul Teague. Hello, and welcome to Self-Publishing Journeys, episode number 93 for Monday, the 11th of December, 2017. My guest today is James Blatch, a former BBC Defence reporter and a former BBFC film examiner. He's probably best known in self-publishing circles as the co-host of the Self-Publishing Formula podcast. As listeners to that podcast will already know, James is writing his first book called The Last Flight, which is a historical military thriller set in 1966. James is fully immersed in military matters. He reported for the BBC on the UK military from, among other places, HMS Invincible, Kuwait and the Arctic Circle, as well as covering the UK air offensive during the Kosovo conflict in 1999. When we chatted for the podcast, I began by asking James if he'd always wanted to be a writer or if it's something that had come up more recently. I don't think I would say I've always wanted to be a writer. And I, like you, Paul, I speak to lots of um, writers and a lot of them do say I was writing as a child stories. Uh, non-stop. Now, I have a few starts and stops of me trying to write a book as a child, and I can remember handing my dad reams of A4 and insisting he read what was probably some pretty terrible writing when I was a teenager, but it wasn't an obsession. Um, I think it was always some, something... i would written a few newspaper articles, and the BBC, I wrote, obviously, my film, my TV news report scripts, but they were terribly short. I mean, like 45 seconds in a in a two-minute package would be your writing but you occasionally because of your position in the BBC got asked to write articles in the newspaper and I, I really enjoyed doing that and I got some nice feedback on, on those um, and then I was working at the BBFC uh, I just about turned 40 around that point and decided to do NaNoWriMo um, I'd been thinking about a book um, and that that kicked it off and then that that book kind of it, it started got written went into a drawer typically and it's only because of my recent uh, connection with self-publishing that I've dusted that down and started it uh, in a more serious sense now. Now you and I share uh, an evil past <laughs> work for the BBC as journalists and uh, I think I did uh, 18 years so you must have been fairly close to that I think you did a few years didn't you? I think I was 13 I think I count probably if you add on the freelance years before that it's probably closer to 15 or 16. So we're BBC old boys. One of the things I hadn't realised was, because I worked in ra- I've worked in radio, I think you were telly mainly, weren't you? Uh, but I did radio and I did online. Um, when I started to write, I, I found that I was okay at it because I'd been so used to writing to deadlines. Did you find a similar thing? Yeah, I can write quickly. And NaNoWriMo, uh, although it, it is, I mean, people, I don't, I'm not sure when this is going to go out, Paul, but if people are planning to do it this year or even next year, depending when this goes out, um, it's, you know, it's not easy. No one's going to tell you it's easy, but I probably found it, like you, easier than others because you just knuckle down and you write quite quickly. i tell you what has hindered me, and I don't know if this is because of the BBC writing or it's just how I am, but I write quite perfunctory. I mean, TV scripting is really tight. You have to tell complex stories in, in six or seven sentences, and there's an art to that, and I was okay at it and also well, certainly wasn't the best but I was okay at it and being okay at that does not make you a great novel writer actually because 
the one thing my editor keeps saying to me is you're moving too quickly. I think a lot of people have the other way around, but I move too quickly through story. I kind of want things to happen very quickly in scenes and I don't spend enough time getting to know my characters and my reader getting to know characters. So I'm struggling a bit because of what you, you said helps you write actually has hindered me a little bit, I think. That's interesting. What about when it comes to description? Because I say I'm not a big fan of description. I like you. I just want to rattle on and get on with it. Do you do description? Yes, I do do description, and um, I use it to to allow the reading to breathe and for me to settle into. The, I write in a period in the 1960s. So there's a, a bit of description. I think you'd need anyway just to remind people of the fact that cars barely had radios that worked, and um, uh, in a lot a lot of things were quite different then uh, and that I don't find I, that I enjoy because that is part and I, I actually did, did spend quite a lot of time in radio as well where description is, is far more prominent than it is in TV because ideally in TV you let the pictures do that side of it in radio it's a really good thing particularly if you're doing a live report and it could be a really dry report and you'll know this Paul that it's it's fantastic to start off those first 20 seconds and just describe where you are and what the scene is and what you can smell and and it really brings radio to life so I quite enjoy that aspect of it yeah, the, the, the good old-fashioned scene set yeah. uh, in, in radio, yeah. Now, your book uh, is very interesting. It's historical military um, thriller, and it's set in, in 1966. What, what made you what, – what's the fascination with that time in history? Well, it's all really to do with my my dad's career. So my dad was an RAF test pilot, uh, and he, he joined the RAF as a sort of apprentice mechanic age 16, um, but transferred over to become a, a pilot and an officer and then – having a pretty good uh, single-seater jet career on, people won't remember these aircraft, but vampires and venoms back in the 1950s um, in Egypt and Iraq, Iran and Iraq and places like that. Uh, he then got selected to become a test pilot. And my dad is, is the world's most, I mean, I've never met anybody in my life without any ego at all, but it is my father. He, uh, he doesn't talk about his past, not because he's embarrassed about it or it's difficult for him. It just doesn't occur to him that there's anything interesting about being an RAF test pilot in the 1960s. Of course, I'm. it's taken me kind of almost as an adult to work out what an amazing life he had. He's so quiet about it. And the prized possessions I have of his are his flying logbooks, which um, are an amazing thing that every single flight you take as an RAF pilot, you log it. He locked the aircraft, the serial number, the actual aircraft that was flown, uh, the how long you're in the air and the purpose of the flight. Typically of my father, he didn't wax lyrical about this. And I should also say that he stopped his flying aspect of his career when I was about 10. I mean, he did hovercrafts, would you believe? They were test flying and trialing hovercrafts for a long time in the 60s and 70s, thinking they might be the big thing in the future. So he moved from from sort of Vulcans and, and, and Valiants and big aircraft to hovercrafts. And I remember him flying then, but I can barely remember him as a natural pilot in an aircraft. So it's really as I've grown up, I've, I've started to see the photographs and, and gradually extracted like blood out of stone some stories from him about this. And uh, But his logbooks are amazing and they're completely fascinating i mean last couple of nights on tv there's been a drama set in aden in the 1960s where my father was of course because anyone in the rf would, would have gone through our rf comac so at some point where a lot of that is set and immediately i got his books out and saw the dates that he landed how long he spent there what aircraft he took in and out um and i i started a project probably about 20 years ago maybe a bit less than that to trace 
every aircraft he ever flew, the actual aircraft, not the type, but the physical aircraft and what happened to them. I put together this book. The Internet's a wonderful thing, of course, with lots of photographs of the particular aircraft in the air and then the ones that have survived, the scrap people that were in museums today that he flew back in the day. And, um, and there was a few amazing moments in that that bit so and i just did that and handed him this book which was painstaking took me years and he went oh that's nice you know <laughs> put it to one side um and so yeah clearly clearly with me i don't i i'm not a, you know a psychoanalyst i can't explain why but there is a fascination for me with that so were you the the typical forces child did you move around or were you fairly static no we moved around and it was i was born at the wrong time as well just towards the end of of his flying hands-on flying career more into management and he got shunted uh, all over the place so i had four different primary schools uh during the six years we have sort of elementary education um settled down into one secondary school but by by that time the damage had been done to me really and i I never settled in school um i left school with one o level i did you know very badly um completely flunked all that so everything i've had i've achieved i've done as an adult later in life so yeah i was a forces child and um on the wrong side of it really now um I was brought up in, in Lincolnshire at the time when the lightnings were flying over and the Vulcan bombers were flying over uh, during the, the Cold War, which is, you know, in our childhood, mm. it seems like ages ago now, coming back very quickly by the sounds of it. But um, so so Vul- Vulcans, I know, sort of feature highly in, 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 in this fiction. And um, I've been lucky enough to go in one. We've got one in a, an air museum just up the road from us. And uh, you can actually go in it and sit in the in the cockpit, which is just incredible. So I, I'm, I'm taking it. Are you very familiar with these? Did you ever get to sort of fly in them or go in them? Uh, I've, like you, I've been in a Vulcan a few times. Um, in fact, with my father, I've sat in, in, the, in the cockpit of one of these Vulcans that sits in a museum, not too far from you at Newark, actually. Um, and that uh, was a great experience. In fact, my father helped the owner of this. We should say to people who don't know, these are massive um, four-engined uh, V-shaped, so they're like a, almost the shape of Concorde with big delta wings, uh, nuclear bombers. They were designed to drop nuclear weapons, built in the 1950s and flown all the way up into the 80s. Um, so I sat there. In fact, my father helped the owner out by – he was puzzled by a few of the things, bits and pieces that are in there. Of course, my dad could remember what they were and uh, a little bit so added in. So that was a good experience. And, yeah, they were – Incredible aircraft. I mean, I think they were special in a way. You mentioned the Lightning as well. There's a few aircraft that come along that that people don't forget when they see them. Um, and the Vulcan, the ground shook, and it it was it had both power, s- size, but also manoeuvrability uh, and noise. And that combination made it a real favourite at air shows. And uh, it's got a it's got a place in a lot of um, of mainly middle-aged men's hearts i should say <laughs> yeah i agree i agree with that we were out for the um, final five pasts uh, was it last year two years ago yeah. they're just amazing uh crafted to be inside them the other thing that it reminds me of um uh, you, uh, being an old boy at the bbc you know the old mark three desks and the kind yes. of traditional stuff at the bbc the wiring inside them reminds me of the good old days of the bbc it looks like it was done by the same engineers you know ca- cables with um cloth around them and things like that yeah it probably was the same engineers in a lot of cases they would have gone quite happily between uh, the RAF and, and the bbc and uh, you're absolutely right although they were we shouldn't forget that in the 1950s this was leading edge technology um, and in fact it remained classified right up into the 80s until really the berlin wall came down um, they were a closely guarded secret as to exactly how how much technology was in the vulcans and uh, one thing i did do uh, 
about a year ago, probably just after they grounded um, XH558, which is the particular Vulcan you would have seen flying, the one they brought back to life and flew around the airshow circuit for a couple of years. They've grounded it now. It's a bit of a sorry tale, the whole saga of, of, of actually trying to get this thing on the ground and, and keeping alive. But they, they started a small program, I think probably short-lived, where you paid 150 quid or something like that, and you spent the day basically uh, in role as a, a, an air crew member who'd been uh, sent over to fly the Vulcan in the Cold War. And you spend several hours going through the training of – uh, of of how they do it, of how they navigate this aircraft uh, a thousand miles across Europe, uh, across the Urals to you know your particular navy yard in northern Russia where you drop your nuclear weapon and then, uh, in fact, you know a lot of the stuff was was really interesting to me. And the reason I did it, of course, was research for the book and it was brilliant for that. Um, and one thing I'd learned was the culture that surrounded them was very serious, uh, again very secret, uh, to the point where they were informally briefed these crews that. Uh, once you dropped your nuclear weapon, do not head back for the UK. That wasn't official. Officially, they would come back to base and carry on fighting. In, informally, they were informed that you know, there probably would not be a UK to come back to. So head down to the Middle East, land in a friendly uh, British Empire country like uh, Iraq, and uh, find a nice uh, local lady and settle down and live out the rest of your days, <laughs> which, which is incredible. But but they were told this informally, and a lot of the crews had privately. They flew together all the time. They didn't separate the personnel because of the particular task they're being asked to do. They needed to know each other very well, and a lot of them had, had quietly decided that that is what they would do. That's amazing. So um, for you then, as a as an author, um, this was going to give you rich pickings, presumably for a story. Yeah. So and the other aspect of, of all of this that I, I started to become interested in when I looked through my father's logbook and I started looking at the individual aircraft is I started to see quite often, not only not that the aircraft he flew, sometimes days after he flew, it wasn't scrapped, but it crashed um, rather dramatically. And uh, I worked out during his test flying career. I mean, I'm lucky to be alive, frankly, Paul, having done some of the stats on this. It was utterly incredible. There was one year in the 1950s, my father was flying Meteors, Gloucester Meteors, very early twin engine jet, uh, flew just at the end of the Second World War. My father flew that. It was inherently unstable and a handful to fly. And in one year, the RAF lost 200 of them. Uh, and they had 300 odd fatalities in one year it's unbelievable today where you know an RAF plane crashes today it's headlines on the news if, if someone's killed still does happen from time to time unfortunately but these days it was different um, and they also relied on a lack of public scrutiny because it was often press blackout in those days so but yeah my in my test my father's test career he he did a year at the Empire Test Pilot School at Farnborough during which two of his fellow students were killed one more was killed just after the end of the course. Several of them went on to die in flying accidents. One of them was killed in Vietnam. And the chief flying instructor died just after the end of the course in a crash in a Veneta. And so this this start, this kind of drama that my father lived alongside uh, started to play in my mind as being, uh, because of my father, I guess I felt a connection to that era. And I felt this was incredible, really, that that people lived in and around these life-changing events and how anybody could come out of it and just sort of turn up to work the next day unchanged by this, having attended all these funerals and 
seen friends. I mean, it's not not wartime. This is peacetime. Even this is happening. So that's where the story started to come from. This idea that there would be, and my th- I think my father's quite a sensitive individual. Uh, I know he is, and I, I am as well. And I think that he probably has been more affected by it than he ever lets on to anyone. So this idea, this character, a bit based on my father who's had a pretty shiny career up until this point and then suddenly is very closely involved in a, in a major fatal accident uh, and the effect it has on him. That that was the genesis for the story for me. Before I dig into the book, I just want to ask you two other questions. Um, number one, um, with all of this going on in your life, it's boy, boy's own adventure stuff. Were you never tempted to go into the forces yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, I think it was partly because I flunked school. And so to become an RAF pilot, you had a, you needed a certain level of qualification, which I simply didn't have. And a bit late in life, in my mid-20s, I did go back and I got the qualifications. And actually, I did at that point sort of wake up to the fact that I was a bit obsessed with flying and this was an obvious move for me. I don't know why it occurred to me late. Um, and I remember applying and the guy said to me, you've just missed the pilot cutoff. <laughs> it was something ridiculous, like 23 and a third years old. Uh-huh. Uh, and I was 23 and a half or something. So he said, you can go on to be a navigator. But um, I think at that point, it would be such a life-changing thing that for me, it would have been worth pursuing the dream to be a pilot. I probably would have loved being a navigator, by the way, but I didn't. So so I came close to it, but didn't do it. I did take my private pilot's license. Actually, one of the things I did in the RAF, Paul, and really the main motivation for me being a news reporter rather than anything else was to do as much with the RAF and the uh, British Armed Forces as I possibly could, and the American Armed Forces, actually. And I got uh, a real treat. I got to fly quite a lot. Um, I got on very well with the forces. I think coming from a forces family is sort of a, an empathy there. And so I flew in fast jets several times in a Harrier at low level in the UK and uh, Jaguar, um, as well as all the other things, the Hercules and so on. And that kind of got the spark really going in me and i did my private pilot's license which i did um in my 30s and uh, i haven't kept i mean i never intended to keep it up over the long term because i haven't got time to fly every weekend but i really enjoyed learning to fly and, and seeing that side of it in terms of putting your book in context, too, I also wanted to give your mum a mention too, because this is this is quite amazing because she was involved in air traffic control as well. She was, yeah. So um so she met my father um at RAF Boscombe Down when he was a test pilot. So she was in the tower there. She had joined the WAF, as it was called in those days, the Women's Royal Air Force. Um it was an air traffic control assistant and she had I think at this point she had left done her time in the RAF but had carried on as a civilian in the tower and uh, she had a very nasty car accident around that time and they it's probably this is 62 uh, a drunken air commodore uh, side impact her in Wiltshire these are the days of course where you know you walk to your car and as long as you could just about walk to your car however drunk you are you still drove it um, and she lost a friend in the accident two of them survived it but she was quite badly injured and she said to me Again, my father never says any of this. And we've lost my mother now. So these these stories, are, are I have to hang on to what I got from her out of this period. I did ask my dad recently, how did you propose? And he almost left the room with embarrassment that I was asking such a, a personal question. But um, he, my mum said that my dad, this young RAF pilot, started turning up in hospital with flowers and to visit her and chat. And I can't even imagine my dad doing that. But um, so that's how they met. Uh, yeah, sort of a, a very, very typical, I think, RAF coming together. Now, your book goes back to 1966, and I think just talking to us about your your mum and your dad and about their experiences, you've painted a very vivid picture of a different time and a different place. How difficult was it for you to capture that in your story? I I mean, 
I was born in 67, so raised in the 70s. Um, and uh, I'm not that far uh, unattached from it. We had a, a big resurgence of CND in the 1980s. Uh, you might remember that, Paul, probably from BBC point of view, the big marches um, on the sort of cruise missile bases. And we lived near one uh, where I was in Cambridgeshire. So the things that feature in my book, actually, I saw firsthand in the 80s as a kind of their second wind. They really started in the 60s with this this idea that Britain shouldn't have nuclear weapons and there were protests. So that features in my book as well. Um, the other stuff, I'm just fascinated with it all anyway. I mean, I love I love getting into the detail of what cars people should be driving. And, and my editor's pretty good as well, actually. Uh, Jenny Parrott, she's I think she's probably about my age, but she sort of says to me every now and again, she's the one who pointed out about the radio. She said radios weren't as common as you think they were in cars. And the sort of old banger I had this woman in, she said it's very unlikely would have had a car radio. So I had to switch that to a transistor radio. So there's a bit of research to do, which I'm really enjoying. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's not, unfortunately, I guess for my age, Paul, I'm not that far removed from the 60s. So. Yeah, well, me neither. My my dad, when we were kids, drove an A30 car. Ah. And uh, you say about them not having radios. Uh, some of them barely had floors yeah. in those days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you could see the uh, road moving underneath the yeah. floor, you know. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, very different times. Now, let's um, let's dig into NaNoWriMo, uh, because this is how a lot of writers start their career. Did you do the 50,000 word thing or did you exceed that limit when you did NaNoWriMo? Um, I did the 50,000 words more. No, I think I finished it early, so I probably did exceed it a bit. So I, um, yeah, I started it literally day one. I hadn't, I hadn't particularly planned to do it. I sat at my desk. I was working at the, at the BBFC as a film examiner in London, which is um, a job where you basically sit watching films and writing reports all day. And there was a bit of downtime there. And I sort of sat there in the morning and a friend's husband a colleague's husband tweeted, oh, I'm doing this, and he put a link to NaNoWriMo. And I immediately opened a Word document and started there. Uh, I got a bit of kind of um, momentum going in the first week, had the bit of drop in the second, as people do. It's quite a tall order, especially if you're not used to it, writing 1,500-odd words a day. But uh, an old BBC friend saw I was doing it. She invited me onto a Radio 4 programme to talk about it, which was the middle of the third week. And I think had I not had that, I would have been sorely tempted to to jack it in. But because I had this appointment to go and talk about it to the nation, um, I felt I can't, I'd be a fraud had I not kept my, my word count up. So that really, that was a good thing. It really kept me going. And I was amazed, actually, by the time I got into the third week, you know, you put too much into it to, to give up. Um, and it was a really, really good exercise to just write, to just get words down, which is at the end of everything else, whatever you talk about, you, you obsess about characters, the rest of it, nothing happens unless you do that bit. So that was a really good exercise to do. And by the end of it, I had the semblance of a, of a book. I mean, it's changed quite a lot since then, but uh, it was a really good thing to do. So the NaNoWriMo book was the last flight, the book that you're going to be publishing. Yeah, I called it Happy Hour um, back in the day. In fact, I think it was even, even they had another name. I'll have to listen back to that Radio 4 interview. Because I think it had a really bad name to start off with. Um, uh, which was pointed out to me. So I changed it to Happy Hour, which I wanted it to be. And I still to this day want the name to be Happy Hour because Happy Hour is a huge thing in the forces. Um, it happens on a Friday and they go, to, they repair to the mess. And I think probably it's the early 70s to mid 70s where it really took hold. But they certainly had a version of it in the 60s, may not have called it Happy Hour. But I played with that a bit. But I, I had, and I wanted it to feature that. And there's also something that happens in the RAF uh, with all the British forces, actually, but 
was a tradition from the Navy, which is the day that somebody is killed, people go to the bar and get drunk, which sounds a bit odd, but that's just what they do. And I've seen this in action. As a BBC reporter, I was invited onto station when there was a, a terrible fatality at RF Wittering in the 1990s. And somebody who I'd, I'd interviewed literally the week before was in a smoking hole on the ground in the north of England. And as I was leaving, I heard the mess and it was laughing and buzzing and 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 noisy and laughter and that's what they do and that's how they deal with that they have an evening of it and there's crying and tears and there's stories about him uh whoever's gone that day and they drink on his bar bill that's the great tradition so the bar bill gets closed at midnight gets reconciled at midnight so up until midnight the dead man's bar bills open of course they know it's never going to be settled. So that's another tradition. And so Happy Hour, is very, it feels ironic, an ironic title for a story that starts in tragedy and, and trauma. Um, I want to, but anyway, everyone else said it doesn't work unless you really know that background. Um, it's not going to work on the shelf. So um, it's become the last fight. But yes, so that was a long-winded way of saying, yes, it is that book. <laughs> but but that's an interesting point there because you, you are clearly steeped in knowledge about the RAF, about the planes, about the traditions. So is there a danger when you're writing the book that you put your stuff in too much of your research and too much of your facts and it gets in the way of the story? Yeah, absolutely. And my editor has, has, has said that to me in, in less polite terms. Uh, than you um she said there there has been too much detail of the flying it's too easy for me to to get into that um so i started reading uh clive cussler and a few other um who's the other guy just been reading i'll come to me in a moment anyway i've just read a couple of other flight books just to remind myself how they've dealt with that um and uh i am now in my uh in fact i'll tell you where i am in terms of of, of the kind of the drafting process because I've, I've made some fairly big decisions in the last few weeks actually because i got a bit stuck with the whole thing uh, but that's definitely something i'm addressing yeah but yeah definitely i put too much detail in now i'm pleased you said that because um like many people i listen to you on the podcast every week and we just get little snippets about your book uh, uh you know mark yawns when you talk about planes and things like that. <laughs> yeah. and uh, which is why it's been great to have you on to talk about it here today because uh, you know i want to hear about it uh, and one of the things i've sensed in the podcast is that you, you're struggling with it and mm. i just wanted to delve into that a little bit what, what what are the struggles for you yeah i mean i've it's been difficult for me to very until recently to really positively identify where i'm struggling but it turned out to be something fairly obvious so i wrote the book um i knew that it was a mess from for after nanorimo i had my sort of fifty-five thousand odd words at the end of november I then over the next three or four months wrote the rest of it and it got up to about a knocking on a hundred thousand words. So fairly big um, book or novel sized book. Um, however, as I went along, cause NaNoWriMo you don't stop, you know, you just write your 1500, you, you, you don't stop and revise or go back and change things. As I went on, I invented quite a lot of things that then needed to be addressed with a rewrite at the beginning of the book to introduce new characters who, are, who appeared halfway through. So that became quite complicated for me. And um, the revision process of that, I did probably, I got, I haven't got to the 90,000 words. I then started to do that process and I probably got halfway through that and gave up. And that's when it went into the drawer. So it was a bit of a mess when I pulled it out. Uh, and I, I didn't really know. I had, I didn't really know how to approach it, but Mark pushed me, which is great. And he said, let's 
get your book finished in some sort of form because we were doing an online course at the time and he wanted it as an example and he needed to go through the formatting and uploading process so it needed to be a book not necessarily we could stop it actually being released but it needed to look like a book so I I locked myself in a hotel for a weekend I had a few write-a-thons here and there I got through it um but it was it was better. I'd stripped out a lot of the detail and I'd scrapped some of those extra characters and stuff I got in. But this was the point at which the editor, Jenny, said to me, you move too quickly. There's so much happening in terms of story, which is, you know, from a story point of view, not struggling. However, from character point of view, it's not not really working. So I started the rewrite again, more or less did the first chapter. Editor was really happy with that. So it's, it's come on leaps and bounds. And then did nothing almost nothing with it months have gone by Paul which is why I don't mention it on the podcast I'm slightly embarrassed about it to be honest and you know I get asked I've just been to the states meeting lots of SPFers uh, and of course I get asked three times a day how's your book coming on um, but I realize now why I'm not approaching and I'm, I'm kidding myself that it's tight it is in part it is time we are colossally busy I am colossally busy and it's very difficult to find the time uh, to put that aside I basically run SPF um, on the operational point of view but it's not just that. Um, and I had a long podcast interview with uh, Joan Dempsey recently, who uh, focuses on the revision process. And she started to alert me to a few things that I thought she, she, she encouraged me to work out what the, the block was. And in simple terms, the block was structure that I, I never really properly plotted the book and I thought because I've written it there and I more or less know what I'm going to do with the story, that that was enough that I could just write it again. But on a day to day level, as in, in the book day to day, I don't, I sit down and I don't know where the end of the scene is. And that's enough for me basically not to really get going on writing again. So the decision with lots of driving in the States and thinking about this, the decision was I'm going to write a really detailed, probably maybe even 10,000 word synopsis of the novel. I'm then going to go through a second process to break that down by day and, and possibly even break it down by scene. So a lot of work is going on now, which I'm really getting on with and excited about. And then I'm hoping that is going to lead to the final drafting stage um, and I can move things forward. So, yeah. Dare I say, isn't there a case for arguing that maybe you should just start from scratch? Yeah, and I, I, I sort of have. With, with the current draft I'm on, I've started from scratch with the book. The, it's not really a revision. It's rewriting the book, um, sort of bearing in mind what I'd written before rather than starting with it and tinkering with it. But even that I wasn't moving forward with because I wasn't entirely sure quite how I was doing it. So that's why I'm doing the plotting. So once I've done the plotting, I will start again. I mean, I might copy and paste. I'm quite happy with some aspects of what I've written. So there'll be some copy and pasting. But effectively, it will be starting again. This feels to me like a really punishing writing experience. I mean, it feels quite grueling as, as, as a listener. I'm yeah. just, just watching it happen. It is. I mean, I enjoy every stage of it. And um, I spoke to somebody the other day who's doing really well with their self-publishing career. And it took them eight years to write their first book. I and mean, they went over it and over and again, rewrote it several times. Um, other people, you know, they tell their stories, how they wrote it in three months. And, you know, I'm not a three monther, uh, hopefully not quite eight years, but I'm not. When I take a step back and move away from constantly being asked, how's your book? Uh, James, I, I'm not embarrassed about the fact that it's going to take me five years, perhaps, uh, from beginning to end to get this released. But it looks like it will be closer to well, maybe four. We'll see. 
In many respects, you are the self-publishing everyman in that you're struggling to write the first book. You're busy, busy, busy with life. You're having to find time um, to do it. Um, from that point of view, does that make you a really good example um, for the podcast, for people watching and learning? Because sometimes it feels like Mark is way ahead of us all. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that works really well. And we you know, we have a little voiceover at the beginning of the uh, podcast, which says a first time author, one, you know, someone's just starting out and somebody's a bestseller. And... Uh, there was a worry, of course, that if I'd had a fantastic Mark-esque career, starting you know, my first book's out, written my novella to sort of give away, written the next one, working on the third, that actually what you've got is two people who are finding it quite easy. And that would not inform the interviews as well as the reality of my position, which is is slightly in awe of people who do it differently and sympathetic to people who have similar struggles. So, yeah, I think coincidentally it's worked really nicely for our podcast it's a good dynamic i mean mark does obviously rib me a reasonable amount of um about you know not getting on with uh, publishing my book but i think there are you know thousands of people listen to these podcasts and they're not all sitting there on a back catalogue of best-selling books like mark a lot of them are where where i am would you have given up if you weren't doing the podcast if you didn't have that public pressure and accountability it's possible i wouldn't have got it out the drawer um, I think that's a very real possibility. I think it would have sat in the drawer until some mythical day in the future when I've got time on my hands, which never really happens. So, yeah, there's no no question it wouldn't be moving forward as it is, which that also worries me. And we're terrible worriers and self-doubters writers, and I use the word writing in, um, in inverted commas, I haven't published anything yet. But part of me thinks, am I a writer? Am I just doing this because, you know, I'm uh, doing a podcast and I'm part of SPF? Um, so you have to, I don't know, I hope, hopefully I am actually a writer. I, I'll, I'll be more relieved than anyone in the world when this book gets published, believe me. So if I, if I put you, if I asked you to put a time scale on it, could, could you do that yet? Um, I think from where I am at this moment, uh, I, I haven't really done that. I haven't deliberately haven't done that. I've got a fuzzy idea in my mind that, uh, there's a possibility of having something by next summer. Um, which would be a good, you know, a good, good thing for me to do. And there was a point earlier this year when I was kidding myself with the revision process. I was going to have it out by Christmas. Um, I'm certain now that between now and Christmas, we'll be working on the structure uh, and then the writing process. I really hope the writing process after that, it might still be two drafts after that, but it, at least it will be purposeful writing, which is what I'm lacking at the moment. So next summer, maybe don't hold me to it though, Paul. <laughs> well, d digging around, I see that you've set up your or the beginnings of your author platform. So you've got the the jamesblatch.com website. Uh, the cover looks amazing. Where, where did you get the cover done? Yeah, Stuart Bache did the cover, who's a, yeah. a cover designer you, you'll know. And he's he, he's done covers for all sorts of uh, great and good, including Mark. Um, and I love his design. And I've spoken to him a lot about design. He's done some work for us, uh, coursework as well. Uh, where he teaches people how to work with designers. So he's he's brilliant. And that cover is absolutely stunning. I mean, I, I you know, I now clearly have the best as aspect of the books already there, which is the cover. And I need to try and match it with some uh, narrative. And why that cover works, I think, is it makes me excited just looking at it. I don't feel looking at that cover that I have to know anything about planes, Vulcans or the RAF. It just makes me excited and draws me in. So I think you've got a great one there. Yeah, no, thank you. And I think it's a really interesting what Stuart talks about in, in the initial brief. Um, and he got straight away, he got that I was talking about earlier, that the impact on this individual, this youngish man, he's 29, 
and he's not really had a major disaster in his life to deal with. He's had a pretty stellar career. He's got a you know new wife, and suddenly he he's lost. Uh, and I think that cover says that, doesn't it? It's just this guy's got a slightly bowed head uh, with his back to to the viewer, standing at the end of a runway, um, looking a little bit forlorn. And that yeah, beautifully captured what I what I'm setting out to do. It's a brilliant cover. And um, looking at your uh, book blurb on Goodreads, so you've been optimistic enough to set up a Goodreads page, which is great. I'm sensing Brian Cohen in that blurb. Is that right? Yeah. Do you know I didn't set up the Goodreads page. So I don't know. I don't know who's set that up. Oh well, it's got. I can sense Brian's blurb because he always yeah. starts the same way and he always <laughs> yeah. finishes. It. If you like, then he always has a sentence at the end like that. So yeah, um, it's got the Cohen formula in there. It will, so, so you, it will be Brian's blurb because he did do the blurb again, part of the course, and using me as an example. Uh, he's a brilliant blurb writer. Um, but yeah, do you know someone else mentioned Goodreads to me? Let me let me just Google that. Hopefully, this thing won't go down. Oh yeah, there we are. So somebody set that up. Do they do that automatically, Paul? Would that have been generated somehow? No, you have to pull your books into. You have to create an author profile. Um, that, that it might actually, actually, it's a standalone book, so it's not an author profile. So if I click, if I click James Blatch, let's have a look at that, and see what that does, because that's that would take you to yes, yeah, so you've got no author profile, but okay. the books come in by the looks of it. But I'm not quite sure how it would have pulled it in if it's not listed. Is it listed anywhere? It's not on Amazon on presale. Or anything. Well, it would have been briefly on Amazon because we demonstrated and screen flowed the uploading process, and then it obviously was taken down. Um, so yeah, potentially, um, something scraped that off and, uh, and stuck it onto Goodreads. I, again, just another thing that's, that's looking at me slightly disdainfully because I haven't produced the book yet. Tapping its finger on yeah, the table. Exactly. Blatch. When's it coming? Exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about your writing process, uh, then. Uh, you know, are you, um, you've had all the advantages, of, if you want, of a mastermind group with, with Mark and access to all these, um, you know, wonderful and successful authors. Have you done the Scrivener thing and, and have you just gone straight for it or do you still bash it out on Word? No, I moved to Scrivener, um, and I absolutely love it. Literally five minutes after starting in Scrivener, I, I knew that I would never go back from that. Uh, my editor likes it in Word, so when I output anything, I output it to Word for her, and she gives me changes back, but then I go back into Scrivener as much as I can. Um, and I still don't think I'm using Scrivener powerfully, you know, all the all aspects of it which are there. In fact, I've discovered more aspects of it. Now I'm doing the plotting, which I'm also doing in Scrivener. And um, because my book, I've got, uh, I'm doing it in a linear fashion with, for instance, the first day, I'm doing it, it sets over seven days. And then using time points, 24-hour clock time points, very military, uh, to, to tell the reader where we are with overlapping storylines. Well, I'm playing with that idea at the moment of potentially doing one completely and then doing the other, but people will know what time it is. And Scrivener, of course, is perfect for that, just being able to move things around. So I work in Scrivener. Um, I've recently, in fact, why it's a bit echoey in here, I've recently moved to a, 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 an office, gar- garden office, I should say, put up in my garden. So I'm out of the house. Um, which has helped my productivity no end. I've got a sit-stand desk, um, which is also helping me um, get through the day and not hopefully um, you know, get too unhealthy in the process. So all of those things uh, are, are really helping. They've, I think they've fed into a slightly renewed approach to, to the writing process for me. 
And, and when you write, do you work, write to a word count uh, by by time? How do you manage your time? I use Brain FM a lot. Um, so I don't know if listeners are familiar with Brain FM. Sort of plays uh, ambient noise and ambient music too. You can choose various different uh, focus, relax, sleep type uh, themed music. And they work in half hour bursts. So when I do a writing session, I never do less than an hour. Um, and I'll try to do two hours, but I usually take a break after an hour and then come back and do another hour. Um, but that's about the most I can do in a day at the moment. I mean, I've not really had um, days where I can do a writing day. It just doesn't exist for me. Mark does uh, is able to do that, but I because I do a lot of the operational day-to-day stuff with the company. Um, my, work, my day-to-day workload is bigger than his. So that's what I tend to do. And at the moment, I've been doing an hour because I'm plotting. It's not quite the same as, you know, it's the word count is less important than... Um, you know, getting the correct structure uh, down for the book. So an hour uh, burst seemed to be working well for me. And do you try to write every day? Do you try and get that rhythm going? No, I don't actually. Um, but uh, that's something else I was thinking about recently. Someone else I was talking to uh, in uh, Nink uh, in Florida said a, a good thing to do when you're struggling a bit, particularly if you're busy, is to set a really low target, like 500 words, and do at least 500 words a day. Um, and uh, that's something, in fact, until you've asked this question, I'd forgotten that I'd had that conversation with him. And that sounds actually a really good thing for me to do because 500 words is entirely possible even on a busy day. Um, uh, but at the moment, I'm doing what I'm probably doing is three hours a week. So it's a bit like my running. I try and run three times a week. So at the moment, I'm probably doing three hour long writing sessions a week. Um, but uh, yeah, again, I know it sounds like an excuse, but you know, what time are we now? We're eight o'clock and I've probably got another hour and a half of SPF work to do before I go into the house tonight. And I started here at 8.30 this morning. So we are, we are running up to course launch and it is particularly insane at the moment. But um, uh, yeah, so I think I, in terms of, of the time I need to get the draft done, it's going okay. I might need to think more seriously when I get onto the word count uh, where it's more important when I'm doing the actual drafting um, in the new year. Um, but yeah, for, for now, um, it's, it's, it's what I can do. This flags up the need for time management. This is a, a perpetual problem for authors juggling busy lives as you are. Do you, do you have any tried and tested or favorite techniques for time management? Um, I don't, I, the only thing I've got really is routine. So I have a, a particular routine in the way that I deal with the type of workload that I have. Um, I'm a, I'm not particularly brilliant in the morning. So the mornings I say, I, I do all my emails and and uh, all the kind of tasks that aren't creative. I'll do first thing in the morning. Um, I then have I know I'm at my sort of most creative in kind of the mid morning to mid afternoon. So I tend to cut videos and that's when I'll do a writing session at that point. And then the evening I try and make value added. So that's what I'm doing tonight. For instance, it's really boring, but I'm doing some analysis of our accounts over the last twelve months so that we can project forward and people, you know, people work in the company and we have quite a few VAs. People have a, can have a see a, a, what the projections are like in the future. That actually is, is quite a difficult thing to do, but it's a value. It's not necessary to do it. So the evenings I try and do something that's going to add some value to the company. So mapping it out then um, in terms of your personal journey, you know, forgetting what you do with Mark, you're hoping to have this book published um, summer 2018 maybe um, do you plan to write many books or, or is this going to knock the stuffing out of you no I really want to write other books and in fact I've already at some point I started the kind of novella uh, which would go before it um, 
And uh, that was based on a story I noticed in the archives when I was researching my father's book years ago. It's quite a nice little story in there of what happened to a bloke one day in the desert in Egypt. So I was going to write the novella about my character, some sort of backstory for him. And I've already got a way forward plotted um, for this guy for book two. So I'm really keen to move on to that stage. Um, but the way I feel at the moment, Paul, I've got to prove to myself and anyone else who's interested that I can write a book to start off with before I get too carried away with the others. So they are definitely shelved at the moment. And presumably you've got a marketing marketing plan all worked out for this. So the minute the minute you deliver this finished book, you're going to put it through the yes. Yeah, the self-publishing yeah. formula process. See, marketing, I feel fairly confident about. I am, yeah, that's the one area that I could, um, you know, if you you came to me with your your books and said, could you do a marketing plan? I probably could do that um, a lot easier than I can write my own book. So yes, marketing, I'm looking forward to that. And um, uh, yeah, whilst it's a changing world, I think I'm got a pretty good grip on what's working uh, at the moment. So in terms of your priorities, then it, 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 for the end of the year, you're, you're obviously. Um, working with Mark, continuing to work with Mark. What do you think you'll have done by Christmas then? Are going to commit you to this right now? Yeah, let's commit me. Well, I want to get the plot done by Christmas and with my editor. So I want her to go through the sort of seven to 10,000 word description of the book in detail. I want to make decisions on on structure before I start the actual word count st- stage. And, you know, from where we are now, I think that's probably going to be mid-January, something like that. So hopefully get something back from Jenny uh, and we can talk about it. There are some decisions. I'm, as I'm doing the plotting now, I'm starting to think a little bit more about how the book is going to work, um, a little bit different from the sort of linear uh, way I had initially planned. Um, I'd like to have that all nailed down and then for better or for worse, lock it and write it after that point. So that's that's my immediate future. So, yeah, draft done by Christmas and with my editor. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it. Uh, we should ask you, now we are, you are a, a potential author, where can we find out more about you? Because we have got author pages set up. Yeah, so, well, I, yeah, I've got um, my jamesblatch.com is a, is a basic landing page for people who are interested in, in knowing when the book comes out. So they'll go onto my little list, of which actually there's some relatively entertaining emails. If you're interested in aviation, you'll get three three or four emails in a sequence to tell a little story with some pictures. Um, and uh, that's the main thing. So that's where my writing persona exists. Uh, and as you've alluded to a couple of times, Paul, I'm one third of uh, the self-publishing formula, SPF, selfpublishingformula.com. Um, and that's our, our sort of business side of things where we run a, a fairly active community of self-published authors who are uh, keen on marketing and learning the very latest in particularly advertising, paid advertising to, uh, to, to find readers and sell your books. Well, it's been great hearing your personal story today. Thanks ever so much for joining me. Thank you, Paul. It's been brilliant. Thank you for listening to this week's Self-Publishing Journeys. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your indie author friends. Or you can leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast directory you use. In the meantime, you'll find previous interviews and all the show notes at selfpublishingjourneys.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll have more great self-publishing tips for you next week.